welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back R.J. Smith to discuss his new book on Chuck Berry, Buckle Up, It's Quite a Ride. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're welcoming back R.J. Smith to discuss his new book, Chuck Berry, An American Life. R.J., welcome back. Hey, it's great to be here. So... If James Brown was the Moby Dick of American music writing, which he took on in your earlier book, The One, is Chuck Berry Leviathan? <laughs> or is he the confidence man? <laughs> <laughs> I think you might be onto something. We're referencing Herman Melville, for those of you whose literacy is limited to rock and roll. Um, but I want to I want to start this Chuck Berry book. First off, I want to compliment you on this, because I, I was very excited when I heard you were taking on this challenge, it, because Chuck Berry is not only as apocal a figure in American music as anyone. I mean, Louis Armstrong, Bing Crosby, James Brown, Elvis Presley, uh, Patsy Cline, there's nobody you can't put him up against and, and he'll match their accomplishments. And his, as you say, his invention of rock and roll as a concept was absolutely revolutionary. At the same time, Chuck's personal life and criminal record make him pretty unsavory to the average person. I mean, there are things that Chuck Berry demonstrably did and was convicted of in court of law, even though some of those trials or all of those trials were pretty racist. Still, the evidence was pretty clear in most of those cases. So tell us about that ba balancing act and how you approached Chuck. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a time, isn't it, when, when a lot of us all of us should be, a lot of us are kind of re-examining our heroes and the people who we've learned from and uh, looking to see what's behind the curtain and, and what the, if their lives matched up with, uh, you know, the values they espoused, say. And uh, so Chuck is a, is, 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 a, is a great way for me, for a writer, to get into that subject. Uh, he was a he, he, he was a victim of racism, and he was a victimizer of others. Uh, he was somebody that people wanted to be around, uh, and he, he had charisma and, and amazing. He, you know, he he all but invented the, the rock star along with Elvis and a handful of others. Uh, he was somebody people wanted to be around, but if you were around him, you might regret it. So uh, I found him to be a really challenging subject to write about, uh, for sure. And I think you did a really good job of it. And there's two observations that you made that really struck me as powerful ones. And the first one is something that you say kind of as an aside in the opening quote of the book and in introduction, when you say Chuck Berry didn't say much about cars to writers who didn't much ask about them. Little mattered more. 
They were a way to present himself to the public as he chose to be seen and a way to hide from those he did not want looking at him. Cars were a sign of his mastery of success. Cars offered a way out. Cars, to Barry, were self-evident in their importance. He loved their surfaces, wrote songs about the freedom they made possible. And once you've written a song about a thing, what else is there to say about it? That's how he viewed the situation. And I think that gets to so much of the enigma of Chuck Berry because he's one of our most brilliant lyricists. I mean, I think clearly Bob Dylan, Smokey Robinson, John Lennon, Mick Jagger, the next generation of great uh, international lyricists paid very close attention to the mastery that Chuck Berry expressed. But if you, you know, he's no Pete Townsend or John Lennon, like there's, you know, those guys would be happy to, to tell you 30,000 words about their 18-line song. But Chuck Berry wrote the song and let it stand for itself. <laughs> how, how did he decide to lead with that very anecdote? Wow. You know, I only as I got into this project did it really become clear to me how much his story on, on multiple levels is a story of, of, of mobility, of African-American mobility, of of something that some of us have the liberty to, to take for granted, to be able to move freely across your city, across the country. Uh, uh, the, the power of a car, <laughs> uh, which is so much of what, of course, Chuck Berry sang about. Uh, and yet in his life, uh, his, his freedom to move was constantly being questioned uh, and, and halted. Uh, and I think that's why uh, when they Smithsonian asked him for his guitar, he, he made clear to them that what they really wanted, even if they didn't know it, was his car, because that was the key to who he was, even though he would never really talk about, well, either his, he'd talk about his car more than he'd talk about his songs, but he didn't like to talk about either very much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and the, the second connection that you make is his mastery of contracts. And that's the thing, like in the 80s, as a general rock and roll fan or punk rock fan, especially kind of the two things you knew about Chuck Berry were he was consistently featured in these underground videos that people were swapping around along with like the anonymous Steve, Vi Steve Vai groupie who humiliates herself and, and, and numerous videos and, and, you know, Gigi Allen. And there would be these tapes we would mail around and, and we'd have these drunken stone parties of, Oh God, did you see this horrible thing? And Chuck Berry was frequently featured in those. But the other thing was we all knew that he had these, strict contractual arrangements you know like people would be hey chuck berry's playing at the fairgrounds way outside of town anybody interested and people would be like nah he's going to have some band of high school kids he's never practiced with he's not even going to tune his guitar we know that he's going to get his cash before he goes on stage and he's going to be gone before the encore starts and you know people knew this but you really explain why Chuck Berry mastered contracts so much and why they mattered to him so much. But before I let you answer, I want to play our first song. And this is another one you picked out as very important to unraveling the mystery of Chuck Berry. And that's No Money Down by Chuck Berry. As I was motivating back in town, I saw a Cadillac sign say, No Money Down. So I eased on my brakes and I pulled in the drive. Gun my motor twice, then I walked inside. Dealer came to me, said, trade in your fold. 
And I'll put you in a car and eat up the road. Just tell me what you. And that was Chuck Berry's No Money Down. And RJ, it's probably too far to say that's the Rosetta Stone of Chuck Berry songs. But tell us why you flagged that as an especially important lyric. Oh, I, I think it's, you know, there's this this saga of a of a of a black man going into a car dealership and, and calling the shots or in his mind calling the shots. Uh, this is what I want. And it starts out, you know, grounded things that you could get. In the, and and by, by the end of the song, he has a whole fantasy about the, the powers of, a, of an unreal car that he wants to own. And he's expecting chop chop the the guy uh, behind the counter at the at the car car dealership to uh to do what he was told and provide him because he's got the money up front to pay for it so it's about uh it's about how money gives you freedom on some level uh which is uh something certainly chuck berry believed and uh proved <laughs> to some degree although uh in other ways he freedom eluded him yeah, very true. And and I think, you know, for historical context, I think it's very important to emphasize that Chuck Berry's parents, for example, grew up in an era when African-Americans did not have freedom to move about. They grew up in an era of literal racist pogroms. There were constant lynchings, constant assaults on African-Americans, mostly in the South or especially in the South, but all over the country, anywhere an African-American traveled. They could be essentially identified and attacked by any white person traveling around. And if a mob formed, uh, you know, all bets are off and you are probably in deep, deep trouble. And so that the ability to own cars and be able to drive away from a mob and not have to, you know, walk on foot the way Robert Johnson or Charlie Patton navigated the Mississippi Delta was an enormous, enormous cultural change. And, and Barry becomes the poet laureate of this new era of freedom. Yeah. But yeah. he, and, and I want to get to this quote because I th think this is really powerful. It says he's literally one of the key inventors of the era because he didn't just help a thing that changed our lives. His conception, rock and roll, created a time. Explain how Chuck Berry invented and conceptualized rock and roll. I think in the late 40s and early 1950s, there were so many people around the country, uh, all over the all over white, black, brown. <laughs> there were just so many people who were alert to what was being played on the radio to what was being played in the maybe the, the, down on the corner or in the park or in the bar up the street uh, and and saw a huge opportunity they saw an audience was being formed by radio for sure uh, and they and they and they saw a chance to well make a buck make a career change history whatever uh, and and there were hundreds and hundreds of people some of them we know some became famous many never left the neighborhood who tried to invent something. <laughs> and I think of all the blueprints that people had, whether they were Elvis or, you know, Bunker Hill, a, a great little known gospel blues singer, or Chuck Berry. Uh, Chuck Berry's blueprint was the fullest, most complicated, most far-seeing uh, for what would follow in his footsteps. Yeah, I mean, he absolutely was. You just have to look at the careers of, say, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the way they used Chuck Berry's templates, his arrangements, his song structures, his ability to 
mythologize himself and the music. And I think that's the most important thing. You say that he changed rock and roll from a verb, which essentially <laughs> meant having sex, to a noun, something yeah. that people could champion as a belief. I mean, whenever you hear something, and you don't hear it as much anymore, you know, rock and roll will never die. But that was a rallying cry started by Chuck Berry. And, and there's another great quote I want to throw in there, that he helped create a hybrid music that had only existed in beta form before. Sorry, Winona Harris. <laughs> and he made it connect across every conceivable border of American culture, a dominant expression of mobility, the idea that anybody could go anywhere they wanted if their words lined up right. Talk about that ability to mythologize and also to make his concerns and his celebration of newfound liberties as an African-American man, he made that universal by applying it to white teenagers, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one amazing thing about Chuck Berry, you know, for somebody who, who, um, you know, he was in the middle class, he was brought up in the middle class uh, black neighborhood in St. Louis. Uh, his parents, mom taught, dad was a, was a craftsman and a, and a laborer, uh, but he was a high school dropout. Um, there's a lot of aspects to his story, but, but how did he see that big picture? The radio is, is part of the answer. He, he, he knew, you know, country, he was listening to everything on the radio, big band, country music, uh, uh, rhythm and blues, gospel. He heard it all on different channels and processed it all. And he understood that there was an audience out there that wasn't, that, that was making racial distinctions as always, but making different ones and the racial distinctions were um, changing and what they meant, the value of them was up for grabs because when you heard a song on the radio, whether it was Western swing or blues, uh, if you liked it and you were white or black, wh whoever you were, if you liked it, there was a connection made there. And Chuck saw the power of that kind of connection. And, and he just had the vision and the, the inventiveness uh, to somehow leap outside his neighborhood and, and make that connection real. Absolutely. And you talk about sort of the mix of musical ingredients that he combined, and you call the combination of Ozark Mountain Hayrides and Hillbilly Boogie plus the blues as, quote, the illegal teenage wedding he brokered at the start of his career, which is a great way to describe Maybelline in 30 Days. But the next bit, you bring in other influences he had, Cuban boleros, Mexican so ballads, street corner sweet talk, Frank Sinatra ballads, Frankie Lane's rawhide melodramas, and also his guitar models. Like, it seems like we get so focused on Chuck as a lyricist that we forget he was also this archetypal guitar virtuoso who took what he learned from Charlie Christian, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Carl Hogan, who was Louis Jordan's lead guitar player, from whom he stole, just cold stole the opening to Johnny B. Good, and a guy named Alvino Ray, who's a pretty obscure jazz band leader. Um, tell us about that, like Chuck as a guitar mechanic. And a lot of people, you know, like Keith Richards said, Johnny Johnson wrote all the chords of those songs. Chuck can't do harmonies. Where do you come down on that debate? You didn't come into it in the book, but I was just kind of curious how you see him. Oh, and true. Steph tells me I got a cue before I hand it over to you. So apologies. This is Chuck Berry's 30 Days. I'm going to give you 30 days to get back home. I done called up a gypsy woman on a telephone. I'm going to send out a worldwide hoodoo. That'll be the very thing that'll suit you. I'm going to see that you be 
And that was 30 Days by Chuck Berry. And so back to the question, how do you reconcile Chuck the musician and Chuck the, the poet? Yeah, that, that, that's a huge question and a good one. I mean, Chuck was of the first generation and who more prominent in that generation who didn't like learn to play guitar one on, on an acoustic instrument and then electrify. But essentially from the very start, he learned on the electric guitar, and he learned with a tape recorder. So he's playing into the tape recorder, hearing the, hearing it back, or he's listening to a Charlie Christian solo on on a tape recorder, playing it, slowing it down, playing it back, and trying to copy it. So he's so he's completely of a new type that that didn't exist before, and he brings the electric guitar fully into rock and roll prominence uh, as, as the lead instrument. No longer is a keyboard or saxophone uh, the lead instruments that they were in rhythm and blues after Chuck Berry came along. Um, in terms of Johnny Johnson, yeah, Johnny Johnson was an amazing piano player, uh, crucial to Chuck Berry's sound and his creative energy, uh, was a true collaborator, whether Chuck would um, officially ever say it this way. He he did casually and constantly say, make it clear what a, what a team effort uh, those early records were. That band sound was. Uh, I, with Keith Richards, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I guess I would say that those you can't take Johnny Johnson out of those early Chuck Berry hits, the greatest ones you know, in the first half of his career, say, uh, you keep, and you, and still have those, they wouldn't exist without Johnny Johnson. And they also wouldn't exist without Chuck Berry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a very important point. And let's, let's put him a little bit into geographic context. Cause I think St. Louis gets overlooked as a major American city because it's not the major American city it used to be. But you point out that, um, you know, in 1880, that St. Louis had the third largest black population in the country, and it was the second largest by 1900. But that that very success in attracting a new population who are basically migrating away from the deep south and looking you know to get anywhere away from say the Mississippi Delta or uh, Alabama. And, but the, that there was a, I'm going to quote quote you on what the elders of St. Louis thought about this. There was a that a principal shaping life in 20th century St. Louis was the conviction that African American occupancy was a blight to be contained, controlled, or eradicated. How did that impact Chuck Berry, and why on earth did he stay in St. Louis his whole life? Yeah, yeah, that's that that's a key part uh, question throughout the book too. Um, so thank you for asking it. Uh, yeah, I mean, St. Louis was, you know, it was a lot of stuff, uh, in, in, in especially in the 19th century, uh, and it is today, of course, but, you know, it's east and it's west, it's on the river, it's north and south. Uh, it, it, in the 19th century, it had, you know, a leading slave market, and it was in a state that, that lent, uh, like, over 100,000 soldiers to the Union effort. So it... it <laughs> It was of many minds, 
in uh, many places, all on one place, uh, and had a, had a huge African-American population. And after the Civil War, it was at its peak power, and, and it had this feeling that you know, anything seemed possible. Uh, they were talking about moving the nation's capital to St. Louis for a while and uh, around the time of the Civil War. Um, so, but as the black population grew after the war uh, uh, and white power uh, encircles it and keeps it uh, in, in check, um, yeah, uh, issues of mobility of where where a black person can live in St. Louis, like like I live in L.A. It was the same story here, uh, you know, restrictive covenants where where you could own a home, where you could live and walk on the sidewalk, uh, were all incredibly policed and got more policed over time uh, into the early and mid twentieth centuries. And you introduced a character that was new to me that that was came along in St. Louis in their public life before the Ku Klux Klan revival. The Ku Klux Klan had, had already existed, you know, founded after the Civil War by Nathan Bedford Forrest, but it had kind of receded in the late 19th century and, and then comes roaring back after Birth of a Nation. But before that, there's this character, the Veiled Prophet, who's kind of a oh city ma- mascot in a way. Tell us about this character and why he was sort of a, a an omen of the coming racist violence that's going to hit St. Louis in a big way in 1917. Yeah, so so there was uh, after the Civil War uh, there was a there was a big uh, well, a big a, a nationwide rail strike and wildcat strikes in St. Louis were bringing people out on the street. There was there was limited looting. Uh, there was uh, white people. Su- some white people saw it as an opportunity to attack black people on the streets, uh, and and chaos loomed for a few days in St. Louis. Uh, and so after that, uh, St. Louis started this this kind of uh, annual pageant, a giant parade with a vague uh, connection to Mardi Gras. Uh, and um, there was a there was a parade. There were bands playing, and uh, the the leader was this guy called the Veiled Prophet, uh, a, a, a super, a Marvel superhero kind of from the Middle East, from the mystical, uh, you know, a, 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 a phantasmagorical, non-real figure who chose to come from the Middle East to live in St. Louis because there was no better place to live in the world and uh, celebrated annually uh with with the city, uh, black and white, in the streets. Uh, but it was very much a show of power, uh, of white power. Uh, the veiled prophet, uh, who never was supposed to be unmasked, was uh, every year was a was a rotating um, white leader of the city, uh, an industrialist, a banker, a real estate person, perhaps uh, a political figure. Uh, the money, the white money of St. Louis were the unmasked veiled prophets at, who ran the city and expected everybody in the streets to uh, to uh, honor them. <laughs> Yeah. And it still goes. It still goes on today. The crazy thing, or the interesting thing, um, it, it's different now for sure. But there still is a veiled prophet celebration in St. Louis, much different, uh, much more um, self-aware. Uh, but it still exists. 
And you'll still see St. Louis millionaires taken to the street with their AK-47s and their (laughs) flip-flops to threaten (laughs) mustard stains. Yeah, walking there, walking uh, on their lawn. Um, So, yeah, you know, Ferguson and and the 2014 situation, you know, the birthplace of Black Lives Matter reminds us that St. Louis continues to be this flashpoint. But let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, I want to ask you about Chuck Berry's first conviction. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So we've talked a little bit about the geographic context that Chuck Berry grew up in and the, the, the environment that his parents, the world his parents had to survive. But Chuck comes up relatively privileged. He's he's roughly contemporary with Miles My, Davis, who's living an even more privileged life with the African-American dentist as a father. But Chuck doesn't take advantage of the opportunities he's given in a, in a conventional sense and quickly finds himself at age 18, arrested and convicted of armed robbery and does, what, multiple years in prison. Tell us about this arrest and prison sentence and how you think it shaped Chuck Berry, the man that we know. Yeah, so, um, well, he was born in 1926, and so he, this is the, the, the mid-40s, um, early 40s, and he had dropped out of high school 
uh, and was was uh, hanging out with a couple of friends from his St. Louis neighborhood called The Ville. And they decided they were going to Los Angeles, Hollywood, the promised land. Uh, and and so they had a car, a ten-year-old a, a Oldsmobile, and they filled it up with gas. And they just had this uh, unformed, crazy vision of going to California. And I, they, I don't, I don't know that he ever really had a clear idea of what was going to be there or what they would do when they got there. But they were going. Uh, they they were there. He was a big movie fan, and images, stars were in his head. Well, they got out of town, uh, and they ran out of gas. They had you know, like four flat tires. Uh, it's unclear how Chuck came into possession of a of a of a gun. Uh, he said it was a piece of a gun, not a whole gun that was found in a parking lot. Um, but they needed money. They needed uh, the tires for the car, so they started robbing. You know, a barber uh, in Kansas City and a shopkeeper a couple of times, and they kept going for a while. Then they decided they were about to turn around, and um, they ended up stealing a car. Chuck in a fever of improvisation decided to jump into a guy's car and 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 pull his gun out and and tell him to uh get out of the car and it, it all ended well it, it, they, they never made it to los angeles and it was a while before they made it back to st louis because uh they, the guy flagged down a policeman. Uh, it, they, they drove right past a highway patrol who were watching what was going on, and um, it was a, it was a it was just a ridiculous uh, botched effort to rob somebody. And uh, as an 18 year old, it was a felony, armed robbery. Uh, Chuck and his friends were sentenced to 10 years uh, at. at kind of a state reformatory uh, of which, you know, he, he only served several, uh, four years, several years. Yeah, but, he was um, freed in 1947. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, uh, but it was, it, 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 it was a, it was a huge shaping event in his life for sure. Yeah. And, and he meets uh, Sam Alexander, who's a musician who mentors him in prison. And, and you, you point out that he kind of, that's where he masters, or he hears a lot of boogie-woogie piano, which is being perfected and is very popular in this era after John Hammond's Spirituals to Swing concert kind of broke it nationally. But Chuck learned to translate that to boogie guitar, and you know the rest is history. But there's a story you tell in there about an occasion in which the superintendent's wife is kind of fascinated by Chuck's band and asks them to perform a special concert at which she asks Chuck to dance. Tell us about that situation and what came of it. Yeah. So, you know, as a teenager, as a as a as a young man in his early 20s and and, and for many many years after that, Chuck Berry was a tall, handsome guy who believed in himself. He had a aura of self-confidence and uh, a, a great smile and and women liked to be around him. Well, uh, Chuck, uh, so so this he had made friends of with the warden's wife. Of course, the warden and his wife are white people, and um, the wife had a private party. It's this strange thing, but she had a private party for some of her friends. Uh, the reformatory was 
was segregated or casually segregated. The living quarters were there was a white quarters and a and a black quarters. So this was in the white dormitory. The white uh, wife is having a party for her white friends, and Chuck and his band, uh, uh, black musicians, are playing for them. Uh, and at some point, uh, Chuck is de- you know the 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 wife beckons him down to come dance with her. She's clearly intrigued and interested in in dancing with with a black man at her party. And um, as they're dancing and the band is playing, this is this is Chuck's uh, account. Um, the white workers, I'm sorry, the white intern, uh, the white um, yeah, prisoners who were on work duty came back to their dormitory as the party's still going on, and of course uh, they're not having it. They're seeing the races mix. They're seeing the warden's wife dancing with somebody that they think is beneath them, Chuck Berry, and all kinds of stuff could have happened. Uh, you know, even in a place with armed guards, um, it, it, you know, dangerous things could have happened. So I, I think the the warden's wife gets him away. They slip out, they hide, uh, they separate, and um, I think from that, you know, Chuck learned a couple of lessons. He, he learned. Um, he could, he learned how dangerous if he, not that he didn't already know it growing up in St. Louis, but he learned once again, how dangerous, uh, a physical confrontation over racist mixing could be. And he also learned also something he probably already knew. He really liked pushing that limit and he liked dancing with white women. Yes, he did. And, and, uh, and, you know, he, he makes a career of it, essentially. But I want to start talking a little bit about the beginning of his career, because he gets out of prison in 1947. And, and he's, you know, for somebody who accomplished what he accomplished, he's a late starter. I mean, compared to Elvis, um, somebody like that, he's age-wise almost 10 years older than the people we think of as his near contemporaries. But, but you, you detected a little intriguing contradiction in the narrative that historically what we've assumed was true what what we read in chuck berry's autobiography and different things was that his first gig was he was substituting for this guy tommy stevens who had actually played guitar backing him in his first ever public performance as a singer when he was in high school but he gets a call to to fill in for his friend's uh, guitarist and that's his legendary first gig in july of 1952 but you found this poster from 1949 at an event called Harlem in St. Louis, and this poster says that he'll be that Chuck Berry will be performing, and he'll be playing his electric guitar at the gig. And the big question mark over that is: Was this show in blackface? So was Chuck Berry like you know Rufus Thomas started in blackface, Ma Rainey started in blackface, the great Burt Williams performed his entire career in blackface. It's it's something that inevitably shocks people in the 21st century when they learn, but it was very customary for black performers to have to don blackface to perform. Did Chuck Berry take part in that tradition? That's, that's yeah, I, I wish I had a definitive answer. Uh, it, it, it sure seems possible to me. This was 1949. It was... Um, it was like a, a fundraising uh, event, uh, a, I think maybe like a couple nights only in St. Louis. Um, the MC, and so I went down, looked at this program that, for the event, uh, and and it has somewhat of the kind of variety show structure that uh, that that was familiar to the um, post Civil War era. Uh, 
the remains of the minstrel tradition, uh, which is to say, you know, a, 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 there's a dancer, there's a um, maybe a, a, a hillbilly parody act, there's a, a blues singer, um, there's a lot of different stuff. Um, the MC was a, was a, not a famous MC, but was somebody who early in his career for sure and made his career performing. It was a white guy, a white Jewish entertainer who performed in blackface early in his career for, for decades uh, on the fringes of vaudeville. Um, and, and so he came from that tradition. He sang Mammy, this MC, and in the late 1940s, he's, he's nearing the end of his career. He's putting on shows in St. Louis and he's doing this. Um, so, so he came from that tradition. He seems to have brought some of that tradition to the show that night, but, and, and the show is called, uh, Harlem in St. Louis. Um, it hits a certain flavor a a set of notes that suggest it might have been but unknowable because the program doesn't say blackface it it, it has black and white performers uh it's it's just unknowable but kind of um tantalizing to think that chuck berry's career so so this is the first performance known public performance of chuck berry on the program he's listed as charles e berry and his electrical guitar um, they did two numbers. Uh, and, and so at the beginning of Chuck Berry's career, he at least is plugged into the form and the format and some of the legacy of, you know, what was a great and uh, evil uh, at the same time, uh, American pop cultural history, the, the minstrel show. So the vestiges of it are in that show whether the blackface part of it is in that show or not, uh, unknown. Chuck Berry never mentioned this show. Oh, he, he, he never claimed that 1949 was the beginning of his career, but it's the first date uh, anyone knows of, of him appearing in public with his electric guitar. Yeah, it's intriguing. I want to be clear that I'm not trying to denigrate Chuck by saying it's some kind of gotcha or this is some kind of humiliation. To me, there's no shame in a young performer partaking in these traditions. I mean, everybody did it and and he didn't create the context. So mm-hmm. I, I just want to be clear on that, but it's still fascinating. And let's hear our next song. This is another favorite. This is kind of what I named this whole show after. This is Let It Rock by Chuck Berry. And that was Let It Rock by Chuck Berry, a song without a chorus, one of Chuck Berry's greatest songs, a song where he totally makes it sound like the most normal thing to do to play craps on the middle of a railroad track. That's <laughs> 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 got trains coming down it. But I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Chuck's uh, two, two business transactions from early in his career. And the first one was a night when Chuck decided to change the way that their the band's tips were divvied up. And and his pianist, Johnny Johnson, who's ordinarily a very quiet, easy to get along with guy. But Johnny drew a line there. What happened when Chuck tried to stiff Johnny on the tips? 
<laughs> yeah, I think Chuck was somebody who who pushed the borders and he required you to push back or else he wouldn't stop pushing. Uh, and and Chuck just decided he wanted uh, he'd earned all the money that night. And uh, his name was at the top of the marquee or the top of the billing. It wasn't a marquee where you were playing, but uh, my dog's barking. So let me know if you, you hear. We can deal with it. Yeah, it's, it's OK. It's pretty quiet. All right. So so he he. he, he felt that he was a star and he was and he decided to uh take all the the cash out of the out of the the tip jar that night so johnny had the car and was driving everybody home uh and johnny gets to chuck's place and drops him off and he says uh, aren't you basically johnny says aren't you forgetting something there and chuck says what do you mean and they had a big fight uh and johnny ended up punching chuck berry to uh to get him to share the money that that the whole band had earned that night. And they were friends and they were men, remain friends, uh, complicated though their relationship was, you know, after that. Yeah, you just had to earn your respect with Chuck or he's he's going to try you. But there's another famous incident where Chuck Berry's the one who's taken advantage of. And I'm talking about his first hit single for Chess Records, Maybelline, which we've talked about many times on the show. But somehow Alan Freed's name, the great uh, Cleveland, later New York DJ, gets added to the songwriting credits for Maybelline. And there's all kinds of people who maybe you could add to the Maybelline song credits, you know, whoever wrote Ida Red and, and the various songs that, that inspired Maybelline. But Alan Freed clearly had nothing to do with it. What was Chuck's attitude to that agreement? And what did it teach him about the rest of his career? Yeah, yeah. So there were, there were, um, there were actually two stranger, strangers listed on that record. Uh, there was Alan Freed, the DJ who played the heck out of that record early on and, and certainly helped make it a hit. Um, and then there was a guy named Russ Fratto, who was a poker buddy of, of Leonard Chess's, uh, somebody uh, involved in um, organized crime in Chicago. Uh, not that that means uh, Chess Records was involved in organized crime in Chicago, but they were in Chicago and they knew who Russ Fratto was. Uh, and and I suspect it was to pay a gambling debt or pay some kind of debt to Fratto, who also printed Chess um, uh, stationery and so forth. Um, so Russ Fratto's name and Leonard and um, um, uh, Alan Freed's name appear on Maybelline. And Chuck had, wasn't informed about any of that. He looked at the record in the store one day when it came out and was thrilled to see his name on it and baffled to see these other guys' names on it. So it was a huge lesson for him. It burned him. It He, he seemed about it clearly decades later, but he didn't forget it. He didn't talk about it uh, in a public way. Uh, he just uh, he he learned how to take care of business on his terms, uh, you know, compared to many other black stars like Bo Diddley, for one, Little Richard. Um, Chuck Berry didn't make nearly all the money that was due him, but he, he did much better than the most. And uh, he he learned as he went how to take care of business. And he, he, he made a lot. He 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 made a good living. That he did. And after Maybelline, he enjoys several years of immense success. There's no other way to describe it. Multiple top five hit records, touring the country, you know, packed concert halls, lucrative concert dates. But then then and like you said, he's pushing the boundaries uh, this entire time of what he can get away with with women. 
and in particular white women. But it's not a white woman that ends up becoming his downfall. It's 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 a Latina woman or maybe a Native American woman named Janice Escalante that he meets in, in Juarez, Mexico, outside El Paso. Talk about this. This is essentially Chuck Berry's Waterloo. What happened with Janice Escalante and what were the consequences? Yeah. So it's uh, 1959, I believe, or 58 and 59. And his trial was 59. So he and the band are playing uh, in, in, in Juarez. Well, they're, they're, they had a they were hanging out in Juarez. They were playing in Mexico, in, in Texas, rather, across the, the border, uh, and then driving across from Texas uh, back to St. Louis. Uh, he meets her at, in a bar that uh, they were hanging out for the day at a bar in Juarez across the border. And um, uh, she seemed older than 14, he said. She told him, she said that she was 21. Uh, she was a Native American uh, girl who had worked as a prostitute, uh, who was basically homeless. Uh, and uh, on the spot, Chuck decides they're gonna. Um, she's gonna show them around that day. So they go on a tour of Juarez, and then he offers her uh, a job in the nightclub that he was running in, in St. Louis in, in '58 and '59. Uh, Chuck Berry's bandstand and um she says yes so she drives back with them from town to town as they get to st louis uh but she's 14 they're having sex in the back seat of the car uh when he gets back uh eventually she wants to go home and she calls the police in st louis and that is uh that, that sets a lot of things in motion. Uh, Chuck Berry was not uh, prosecuted for having sex with a 14-year-old. He was not prosecuted for, for rape, uh, which in some of those states probably that he was driving through, uh, it would have been a crime for sex with a 14-year-old. Um, he was found guilty ultimately of violating the Mann Act which is a strange, uh, unsavory piece of legislation in different form today, still on the books. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it was used, I believe, in part to prosecute R. Kelly, a different form of the Mann Act. But originally, the Mann Act basically uh, was used to prosecute black men who were found in a car or, or crossing state lines with white women. Uh, it was about uh, protecting white womanhood. It was a felony because you had to drive across state lines, um, and and in the language was uh, you you were traveling across state lines with uh, for more for immoral purposes. So that's what brings Chuck Berry down in the early 1960s. Is again not not questions of rape or or sex with a 14 year old. Uh, she was sort of like roadkill in the trial. They weren't concerned about her. Um, they they. They treated her chattily uh, as a witness. Um, they were concerned about putting him away for for being uh, a powerful black man, <laughs> looked up to by white teenagers who had sex with whoever he wanted to. Yeah, and and uh, you know the message uh, was delivered, and and he's Chuck Berry's prison sentence is right up there with Buddy Holly's plane crash or Little Richard's religious conversion or. Uh, Elvis Presley joining the army or Jerry Lee Lewis becoming, you know, persona non grata because of his own peccadilloes. 
you know, this this is how the original wave of rock and rollers were were taken out one by one. And let's hear our our last song. This is My Dingling, Chuck Berry's only number one hit, and something that critics and and many rock fans saw as an embarrassment. But when we come back, I want to talk about the legacy, the the, the sources of this song, and why there's actually some R and B credibility to this tune. My grandmother bought me a cute little toy Silver bells hanging on a string She told me it was my ding-a-ling-a-ling-o And that was My Dingling by Chuck Berry, a 1972 number one hit for him that, you know, people like Robert Christgau just uh, bowed their heads in shame and, and, and disavowed it heartily. And that seemed to be the consensus of rock critics in the early 70s that this was this juvenile embarrassment. But the song actually dates back quite a ways. I mean, it's got the melody of Turkey and the Straw for one thing, but Dave Bartholomew, who was Fats Domino's musical partner for 50 years and songwriting partner, is actually the one who recorded uh, the first recorded version of that song that I know of, and presumably Chuck's source for that. Talk a little about that song. And where do you? What's your view? Where do you come down on it? Is it is it part of R and B tradition, or is it an embarrassing <laughs> disgrace? Well, why do I have to choose? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. Now, see, I, I I was born in '59. I mean, the year that you know, Let It Rock came out, which is my favorite Chuck Berry song, but I didn't really hear much about Chuck Berry until that year, 1972, My Dingling. That's when he became a, a pop star to a new generation, his only number one hit. And um, it was confusing because, uh, he, yeah, he was singing about his dingling, and and you could it's a live recording. People are laughing and enjoying it and, and, and talking back and forth. It's a real group effort. Uh, and and I, it's not a, it's not a great song. It hasn't held up well. It means all kinds of stuff. It was an important song, and Chuck loved it because it made him a lot of money, as he always liked to say to interviewers who were asking him to feel bad about that song. Um, you know, but uh, what I like about it, what's interesting to me in that performance, it's a group created it's a group improvisation or or he's leading it's not really an improvisation but he's bringing something out of his his listeners and they're participating and that record comes out of a a a culture of collective improvisation that's how he and johnny johnson worked with the with the band when they started they would jam and play live and play some blues and the blues would morph into something else and they put some words on top of use uh you know classic blues lyrics and then change them from night to night until it was chuck berry lyrics eventually and out of that is is you know so many chuck berry records came and and here's a here's an alternate example of that from 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 black creative history in general uh, from from davy bartholomew uh, i found a newspaper story in a new orleans paper in the uh in the, at the turn of the 20th century, where the guy who got the copyright on on the song "Little Brown Jug," which is also an, um, an important um, antecedent to "My Dingaling," uh, Davy Bartholomew 
surely heard and was responding to Glenn Miller's hit version of Little Brown Jug. Uh, but Little Brown Jug, you know, was probably written by black kids in Philadelphia uh, working around the railroad station. And this composer heard them and 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 got it, got it all excited about the, the melody they were they were singing. So uh, it's 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 you can't take my ding-a-ling out of uh, Chuck Berry's body of work because you don't like it. It's very much a piece of the process that made all those Chuck Berry records. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it obviously had a certain appeal that hit America, right? You know, this was the year of Deep Throat and Behind the Green Door. So this was a perfect <laughs> year for a really crass, uh, uh, barely barely veiled metaphor uh, uh, for sex, sex organs. But last thing I want to ask you about, and there's so many things I, I actually don't even want to ask you. I just want to mention some of the things that you taught me in this book that we didn't even get time to. One is Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who was the, the Barry family's poet laureate, essentially. He was their favorite African-American poet in a house that was soaked with poetry. And so if you're interested in learning more, I mean, obviously read this book, but uh, Google, you know, Paul Lawrence Dunbar and, and his poetry and, and, Read some of that stuff, and you can definitely hear some of the cadences of of Chuck Berry's poetry in that. And they'll, and the, you know, then there's obviously uh, the 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 1980s downfall when he was caught videotaping women using the restroom in his restaurants and amusement park, and that kind of killed his third comeback when when he you know wrote a big autobiography and and did a TV special or a movie special with Keith Richards and Eric Clapton and others and kind of spoils it all with an, yet another jail term. But then at the end of his life, he has a, a full 15-year run of playing these really special shows in St. Louis with sympathetic, knowledgeable musicians who knew him, who, you know, presented Chuck Berry as he should be presented. And, and you know, many people got to enjoy that. So the book is just full of treasures that we can't get to. RJ, thank you so much for writing it and being uh, my guest on the show. The book is Chuck Berry, An American Life, and RJ Smith has been my guest. Nate, thank you so much. I mean, I, I love talking about this, and, and I love talking about it with somebody who really asks the right questions. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> thank you. I, yeah, we, we I do read the books, and, and I like to, to ask the questions that come to mind as I do. So it's, it's definitely the pleasure is all mine, RJ. No. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Monday, Nate and Ed Leg will be back on track with more discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 